0: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 96 is Andrew McMahon, who started playing professionally while still in high school with a band called Something Corporate. You're right now listening to their 2002 single, I Woke Up in a Car, from the album Leaving Through the Window. So they had a couple albums, then he had three albums under the band name Jack's Mannequin. And now three albums and an EP under Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness. We're going to be talking about Blue Vacation from the most recent album, Upside Down Flowers, 2018. Then turning to Synesthesia from 2013's The Pop Underground EP. That's the first release by Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness. Then we're going to look back to Something Corporate with Me and the Moon from their final release, 2003's North. And we'll conclude by listening to Swim by Jack's Passenger from the 2008 album, The Glass Passenger. Learn more at andrewmcmahon.com. For more about this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please contribute at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will play it a little bit of something corporate. I woke up in a car to give us a uh, starting point for your career, but we're going to jump pretty quickly to Blue Vacation from your current album, Upside Down Flowers, under the name Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness, 2018. Do you want to say something brief about the career arc just to orient folks before we get into talking about the current album.
1: The genesis of I Woke Up in a Car was really the very first tour that something corporate embarked on. I grew up in a a sort of road tripping family and moved a ton as a kid. And so I I think I've always sort of been pretty accustomed to and, and inspired by being on the road. But certainly that first moment where you're a teenager and have been given the keys to a 15-passenger van with a trailer and you and your buddies are all of a sudden signed to a record deal and all all of that. I mean, it was this very kind of empowering and, and inspiring moment in my life and in my career. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, either one of two or both of these tours, we had gotten picked up to do like a Doc Martin-sponsored tour through House of Blues venues around the country. And then we picked up from there on a tour with a band called Lucky Boys Confusion that were like a big band out of the Midwest. It would have had to have been like late 2001 going into early 2002. And I just had been keeping notes and like mental snapshots of... You know, what that looked like being on our very first professional tour where we were getting paid, albeit very poorly, to cross the country and play music for people for the very first time, you know, showing up in these cities and some nights seeing five or six people. And then other nights, miraculously, 50 or 60 would show up who had heard about our band. And coming back off of that road trip, you know, if I recall correctly, and maybe it's just the legend I've created in my mind about that song, but... It wasn't more than a day or two having come back to my parents' house, you know, where I had kind of grown up and lived in high school and where my piano had been stationed in the garage so that I could write music and write my early songs. And I sat down at that same piano and stitched together all of these memories into what became the song I Woke in a Car.
0: All right, so nine albums, a few EPs later. We're looking at Upside Down Flowers. So how was your overall approach. I mean, I see that obviously you're working with completely different people, it's a completely different production environment. Say something a little about where you're at now with the new album, and then we'll introduce Blue Aviation in particular.
1: It's a funny thing, because in a weird way, this record was, I hate to use the term return to form, but as far as my approach to the writing, especially for this record... It was very much me back in my garage with my piano and distilling the thoughts of the day, albeit in the middle of a much different life. I've got a family now and and I'm sort of Built my writing sessions in between drop-offs to school and, and, and various different other more adult responsibilities that I probably had when I was writing I Woke Up In A Car. But I don't know if it's out of habit or what, but I, I found you know a little house with a detached garage that I could convert and, and turn into a writing space. And, and it was from that place that I kind of sat on my own and, and put together the songs that became this album.
0: All right, how about Blue Vacation in particular? So this is the second track. I picked this one because it just had production values that jumped out to me and sounded more Lennon-ish the more I listened to it. Say a little about this song, what it's about, what folks are about to hear.
1: One, any Lennon reference as it relates to my music is a huge compliment, so I appreciate that. John Lennon and very much particularly Imagine and Plastic Ono Band were two of my favorite records of all time. This song has, has a quality to it. There's a bit of cynicism and irreverence built into this track that, strangely enough, is probably more akin to some of my earlier writing. I think the way that we approach our modern politics and the way that these discussions take place, or if you can even call them discussions, I think had really worn on me. I consider myself a pretty worldly person and a traveled person and somebody who certainly has my opinions about the way the world works or doesn't. But I think the song itself was born of exhaustion of people in echo chambers, you know, screaming into the chambers and thinking that they're making progress and, and instead really just deepening these bizarre divides that we have kind of come accustomed to in our daily lives. And I think there was just a sense in me when I was writing this song that in lieu of jumping into the conversation, I felt kind of like just running a million miles the other direction and finding some place for me and my family and friends on some island somewhere where we didn't have to engage in the hyperbolic discussions that are circling us kind of daily in social media and and elsewhere. And yeah, I I think that was my vision of a blue vacation was kind of a a vacation from the news of the day, I suppose. (laughs)
2: Celebrity.
0: So, man, this is a definite production. Obviously, it was written, you know, as a piano and vocal thing, which is w- one of the reasons why I wanted to pick this. Unlike something like Firescape, which is so produced and, you know, sounds of the day, does this go through a, a demo phase? What is the journey here from sitting at a piano and coming up with these words to the full produced version here? Who are you even working with on production on this?
1: There were very few iterations, truthfully. The song was written, basically, as you hear it in the piano part that you hear on this recording is really the piano part as it was written. I think I wrote the bridge in the studio, if I'm not mistaken. But I, early on, connected with Butch Walker to work on producing the songs that I had written for this record. And he's just a great spirit and an unbelievably talented musician and producer. I think he's just got such a wide musical vocabulary that there are a million directions the song could go. But I think as we started working together, it was pretty clear where the productions for Upside Down Flowers would head. And we wanted them to feel classic. Of course, you still want the sounds to feel modern and not necessarily like you're attempting a recreation of the past, but maybe an update on styles that we both connected with. Like, said, you know, you referenced John Lennon, you know, I think certainly there were, you know, a lot of Beatles changes and Beatles chords written into the songs on this record. And so I think there were a gravitation towards some of you know the Beach Boys Beatles kind of production methods. But yeah, I just went into the studio and played this piano down and sang this vocal down probably in in an hour or two and mapped out the song and then Butch went to work. He played most of the instruments on the album and I'm looking at, I'm just trying to run through the production in my head as we're sitting here talking, but I I think it's pretty much just me and Butch on this song. Roger Manning may have played some keyboards on this one as well.
0: So something like that intro that really sets up a false expectation about what you're about to hear. I mean, just having those synth drum sounds, are there live drums or is this all synth drums throughout? Obviously some of them are synth drums. Oh no, I mean, it's mostly live drums. It's, it's, It's almost entirely live. Okay, so it's just very processed.
1: Yeah, I think even that intro, it, that may have been like some 808 samples for the intro. I mean, I think there there is definitely some sampling on that drum kit for sure, but it, it's a hybrid of analog and program drums for sure in that track.
2: Don't
0: Yeah, so we have this, like, synth wash, like we're about to start Rush's Tom Sawyer or something, and then just, you know, throw us off immediately that we have the two claps, which are panned very, very hard right, and then start in. Am I right that maybe you'd already established that this drum sound was going to be used through the verses and then said, you know, that's interesting enough by itself that, you know, let's put it up front just to show the contrast. So again, was this butch going in there and putting in the swirling synth, or is it kind of a... I know my first band, I played with a a guy who owned a sequencer so it was a lot of me kind of la la lying <laughs> at him dictating stuff you know it was that kind of cooperation is that how you're working with these producer synth folks or is it really bush goes off and does something and then you give feedback on it
1: specifically on this song so i put the piano in and i put the vocal in
0: and and, and hysterically i think i cut that vocal and a couple others
1: when i was when i was a little under the weather on the, on this particular track and I put this stuff down and then Butch went in and he did the programming and sort of the, the base, you know, like kind of laid down effectively like a great rhythm track and I kind of split and let him put it together and really dug what he did. I mean, I remember when I got in that day, there were a couple of things that didn't quite sit with me about the track, primarily being the vocal. I remember thinking to myself, like, I just wasn't happy with my vocal sound. And I said, like, well, what if we double the vocal through the whole song, you know, take a very kind of John Lennon approach to the vocal and see if that sells me on it. And there was also the piano up till that point had been much busier piano part it was more like on the eighth note and kind of pushing constantly and and I remember coming in once I had heard that drum take that he had done and saying okay cool what if we just play into this space Thing. And and so I carved up the piano part a bit to make it a little less of a bounce in the verse and a little bit more of that thumb to third on the right hand and it kind of going back and forth a little bit, but leaving space so that those drum breaks, you could hear them, you know, and give space to those claps. And frankly, to be honest, on a lot of this stuff, we really did this in a very visceral way. And I don't, I don't think we've spent more than... I mean, studio days on this record, maybe 20 or 30 days total in the studio from the time we recorded it to the time the songs came in to the time that we sent them off to mix. So it was really about hearing the piano and the vocal and saying, like, what can we put around it that honors the lyric? And I do tip my hat to Butch on this. I yielded a lot of the early production to him because I lived with the songs from a writing standpoint for so long that I really wanted somebody else's perspective on where they saw them living in the speakers after I sort of delivered the vocal and piano performances. And he did a lot of that initial building, and then we would kind of collaborate from there.
0: Let's play just getting into the chorus here. So obviously you've got to have some big contrast. You know, Nirvana-esque between your relatively restrained verses and then it opens up in the chorus. But yet yeah, it's still basically doing the same kind of piano part. I mean, you're singing higher. You have the nice, you know, the bye i that soaring introduces it by itself. But it seems a lot of it is just, you know, let's throw in some extra production elements. Let's throw in some sleigh bells. Let's change the way that the vocal is EQ'd. You know, put extra reverb on it, kind of open it up, add some synth strings droning. Something there filling up the high space, certain mellotron string up there. And for me, the inspiration for this melody
1: in the chorus and the post-chorus is very much Brian Wilson. You know, I think there was a period of time in my life where, you know, I listened to just Pet Sounds on repeat, and it was it was really baked into to my writing. And I found myself kind of gravitating back towards a lot of that on this record and particularly on this recording. And so I remember in my conversation with Butch saying like, you know, I would really like to see, like I want to hear sleigh bells on this thing. And I wanted there to be that balance in the piano, the balance you hear in the piano on the right hand is sort of what originally I was doing in the verse that we kind of cleaned up to give it, you know, like one extra gear to go into. And yeah, I think you'll notice there's a really cool thing. If you go from chorus one to chorus two, I think it is, Maybe it is on chorus one, but you'll you'll notice there's a triple track of the vocal where you just have a single vocal coming down the middle, and then there's a triple where they're panned hard left and hard right. You can really hear when you hit the chorus how it opens up into that fuller vocal sound. But it's really you can kind of pull out the individual vocals, all three of them. Which you know usually when you do a triple, or at least when I do, I like to kind of shade the double and the triple in, so it just feels like the single voice is bigger. But in this case, you really hear each individual voice, which was a uh, Brower thing. Michael Brower, who mixed the record, who did a great job. It was a choice he made when mixing the record to sort of really spread those vocals out so you could pick each one of them up individually.
0: It seemed like you were kind of torn between should I harmonize this like a Beach Boys song because you know to reflect the rest of the Beach Boys vibe that's going on in the chorus or not, and that you compromised by well okay the first time we won't do that the second time we'll introduce those things. I still felt like they were pretty subtle. Like yes, you can hear them, and I like the fact that you know actually kept it through the whole vacation. You know that the word vacation moves through a whole melody by itself, and that you managed to have the harmonies follow that entire thing without it sounding you know, Gregorian or too barbershoppy.
1: If you pull the tracks apart too, the harmonies on it are super weird and I have to really give Butch credit for it because he like found some very strange ways to harmonize that melody. Obviously, there are a lot of notes in that melody and, and yeah, there's some danger when you get a melody that's that active, you know, how you harmonize it. But I thought he did a really beautiful job.
0: And I know it's tempting when you have that kind of harmony to, you know, you have this repeated vacation at the end. You know, it would be very easy to like, okay, let's do the acapella part We're we're doing that vacation, or maybe this would be a live <laughs> thing, doing the three-part harmony and we're clapping along with it and everything else is dropped out. But, you know, as gimmicky an arrangement, it still remains tasteful. It does not go to that extent <laughs> to expose, look at the cool work I did in, in harmonizing here.
1: And I think, too, with that melody, which was like, I mean, it, admittedly, this was a particularly fun song to write because... There are some songs you write and you just sort of you get from one section to the next and and you feel like you know where it's going and it doesn't necessarily require more writing and with this particular song like I had written the verses and the choruses and felt somewhat finished and then all of a sudden I was like well what if I just found a way to make that word vacation really happen you know and it, it was one of those moments as a writer i was like i'm just going to keep writing this song and see what more there is and yeah i mean it, you know speaking to those harmonies and how we approach that like when we got to the very end of the recording you know and you hear that you know you it cycles through that post-chorus four times at the end of the track and then i remember going to myself like this just i always get exhausted when pop music when the third chorus is just don't have anything fresh for you, you know? Like, I I feel like if you're going to write a song, I
2: mean,
1: you know, especially, I feel like good pop music really makes an effort in the bridge and the third chorus so that the listener has a reason to keep listening, you know? And, you know, once you become familiar with a song and you're excited about a song, I think what makes it classic or what makes it able to sort of move through more than a a year or a fad or a, I liked this record you know, when kind of process, a lot of that comes down to how you handle your bridges and your third choruses. And so I was got a little bored in chorus three, you know, when, when we had finished in the last minute, sort of just did those little bits of like adding ad libs to chorus three and then adding that high harmony on that last post chorus, just to give it something else to sort of keep you hanging on and give your ear some place to go. And I think that that's like, it's simple, subtle work, but I think that stuff becomes really important if you want people to want to listen to these songs for more than their initial sort of interest in them.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that bridge. You know, it's an effective but not terribly unusual effect. You know, to, to start the bridge, let's have what's been going on. Most things drop out and you compensate for that by having this nice string part with some kind of backward washing <laughs> reverb and things like but it, it quickly the bridge in fact I want to play the transition between the first half and the second half of the bridge.
2: Can't seem to turn it off.
0: after turn it off i wrote french horn launch it sounded like some little you know Beatle-esque kind of but it still only gets up to a certain point and is crescendoing through that whole second half of the bridge you know not to a crazy extent like we still want the chorus to be bigger than this whole thing you know i wasn't exactly sure where maybe this was just a mixing thing that the piano and the bass and the and even the drums are kind of crescendoing slightly through that second half of there so you only really hear them in full at the end, but was there a bass part recorded for that whole thing, for instance?
1: Originally, there was just that string part at first, and then that decision kind of became, you know, and all that stuff was sort of written on the spot. I think once I came in on day two and Butch had kind of laid down the rhythm track, I had sort of, gone, okay, well, we need like a bridge that's a little bit, you know, that takes us out of this, For a second, you know, obviously there's this kind of, you know, the whole song is this groove. There's this laid back kind of intentional sort of island flavor. And I wanted there to be something that was a little bit more urgent and something that pushed it along a little bit further and into a different territory. And so, you know, I mean, we wrote those string parts. We just wrote those on a string patch and arranged it kind of on the fly. And then. You'll hear these, you know, obviously the little swells or, or, or guitar swells, and he has that bit of instability here right before the bass and the drums and the piano kick in, which is just like this, I think it's like a cable of the guitar kind of coming in out of the pot. You know, all with the intention of building up some instability as you kind of get to that guitar solo section.
0: And then I assume Butch is responsible for this guitar solo, which is super fun, especially at the very end of it.
1: That was also another one of those on the fly kind of decisions, too, because originally it was going right back into the chorus from that bridge, you know, and it, it didn't feel totally satisfying. And I remember kind of calling him from the car and going like, this needs a guitar solo. And so then we put a guitar solo in, but it was like at that point, I think it was eight bars and it was like, oh, it's too long. And so we cut it down. I, I think I mean, I think it's it's two or four bars. I'm not remembering right off the
0: off the bat. It's 10 seconds. I know it's not it's not long. Just enough, I
1: think, to make you want the chorus again, you know, and that it's part of the reason why I like to write bridges when I'm in the studio, because I think a lot of times the idea of a, a middle eight or a bridge section, in my mind, is always, you know, to be the thing that justifies the rest of the song taking place, you know, and, and makes you want to keep listening. And And sometimes you don't know what that bridge needs to be until you hear until you're actually the listener, you know, until you know what the audience is going to be hearing. And, and at that point you go, okay, well, what this, you know, and especially in the case of this song, I was like, what it needed was space, you know, it needed a, a fresh instrumentation. And, and that's why I think those strings are so effective in, in this song is because you do have like a very solid rhythm kind of traditional piano track with some drum program. And all of a sudden you hear this very lush, beautiful chamber music underneath the vocal and it kind of it, it takes you into a different place.
0: All right, well, let's get our second song on the table, Synesthesia, from the first EP for this project, Andrew Man in the Wilderness, from 2013, the Pop Underground EP. So different production environment, but it's still basically you working with a producer who's programming the beats and things like this. So same basic way of making music as opposed to, you know, the early band work or, or the Jack's uh, Mannequin stuff where you're playing, you know, live in a studio with people uh, for some of that. Do you want to say a little about this song before we hear it in full?
1: I mean, this whole EP was a real experiment, you know, not to dive too much into the personal or the business side of it, but I I was really kind of at a place where I was unsure of what I was going to do next. I had been doing a lot of. Writing in the room for other artists and other projects, and I had done a TV project. And that the whole scenario of, of creating the Pop Underground was, you know, having been in the room with a, a ton of sort of more electronic artists. And I asked my manager, I'm sorry, my publisher at the time, I said, like, you, know, do you have anybody that you're really excited about who maybe is a little green, but you feel like is super talented and on their way up? He introduced me to this guy, Mark Williams, who to this day i mean just a musical prodigy the kid was i think when we started working together i think he was 19 or 20 years old obviously the two of us in very different places in our careers and we wrote a lot of music together and and with this particular song i had written the verse before i got to the studio and i wrote the verse it was all about it was all about being at my house and, and coming across a newspaper where i saw that i handful of my good friends who had been in music with me for a number of years had been nominated for a couple of Grammy Awards or something, you know, and I I had that, like, I can only say as a a duality of emotion, one where you're very happy for your friends and the other one going, where's my Grammy Award nomination, you know, And and so I wrote that lyric. It was kind of about making peace, I think, with, with all that and, and finding, uh, you know, just saying to yourself, like, okay, well, don't reflect on the things you don't have. It's maybe best to reflect on the things that you do. And that's where that verse came from. I brought into the studio, Mark and I had written a lot, just like we would go in and we would just write from scratch. He'd put up a beat and I'd put down chords and start singing over the top of it, like a very traditional sort of top liner, pop production approach to writing. But with this one, I had enough of it written that I was excited about that I showed up and he, you know, super talented instrumentalist and and programmer and, and producer. And he immediately kind of, you know, started building a production around the verse and the song came super fast. I mean, I think we wrote it on the fly and produced it, you know, in an afternoon. And then eventually, you know, went to Tony Harper, who's done amazing work with Beck and the Kooks and super talented guy. And he being sort of a, a little bit of an elder statesman from a production and mixing standpoint kind of helped us corral our vision on the song with some live drums and some additional vocal production and things like that.
2: Saw pictures from the space shuttle North America at night I could almost see my house I could almost see the rest of my life Now my mother's in the hospital And my friends are in the news Collecting trophies for the songs they wrote Shadow of the moon. Guess I never made a gold record and I've never been to Mars. But I've traveled around this world shooting fireworks at fallen stars. My father's got a decent job, I hear he's fine. Singing the songs we write, we are in the shadow of the moon. Twisting high above a narrow beam And my brother looked so proud Like he woke up in this perfect dream And I've known you all my life But I knew you long before that too Let's go dancing to the songs we wrote When we lived in the shadow of the moon Kill
0: phase here was this still started with you sitting at a piano (laughs) and at least having the chords all this stuff is is effectively written at the
1: piano you know and the cool thing about mark as a producer i mean as obviously you hear it's a a very electronic sounding record but most of those things are played and i think that's the thing that i actually really ended up loving about that record i mean even down to the the drum programming most of that stuff was like programmed into an mpc and performed live and so i think rather than it feeling Super gritted out and and shackled to the beat. The thing I think that makes Mark such a talented producer is that he really is an exceptional guitar player, an exceptional piano player. And so a lot of those swells and and, and a lot of the very rhythmic stuff that you're hearing, you know, wasn't like drawn onto a computer screen as much as it was performed. And you know, despite obviously the fact that the sounds are, are most certainly synthesizers.
0: So have you yourself, having worked with a bunch of people like this, gotten sucked into the writing things at a PC with patches, you know, rather than at a piano away from electronics? That doesn't really satisfy I me. Mean, I love electronic music
1: in all honesty, but I'm like a firm believer in the, the do what you do best kind of concept. And, and for me, what I do best is I sing and write and write words and music while sitting down at, at a piano, you know, and even when I end up Working with producers who are sort of the modern ilk and, and are doing most of their production in the box, like I'm still sitting at a piano and writing. Yeah, you know, I think what makes the electronic music that I have worked on, at least in my mind, still appealing to fans of singer-songwriters and you know sort of a folkier approach to writing is because they're still written that way. It's just how they're produced that becomes that sort of unique juxtaposition of writing to production.
0: Well, let's talk about the writing here. We didn't really talk about your lyrics on the last one. And just the chord progression. You know, it's a fairly simple chord progression, but I like how a lot of electronica stuff just grooves on the same chord (laughs) forever. So the fact that you're kind of going back and forth between two of them slowly, we can make sense of that. It's just one to four and back again. It's a blues thing. To get out of the collecting trophies with the songs they wrote when we lived in the shadow of the moon, then the changes go double time so that, you know, you thought you were just going to drone for a while
1: gets to the minor gets a little bit something fresh for the year to say okay maybe another section's coming our way
0: i was thinking of a u2's within you without you for some reason even just in that you know that slow change of chords and then once the actual u2 reverb guitar comes in at about a minute in like okay i was not imagining this and
2: my father's got a decent job but he's finally pulling through
0: It's the update of that sound in terms of they didn't have, at that point in 1991 or whatever it is, layers of synths like this. It was more subtle, washing, you know, substitute for strings, but it's the same kind of emotional gesture. I don't know, the whole song is very wistful. (laughs) Can you say a little about, about more about this? The way you you start describing it, seeing things from high up, you know, it's taking the long view.
1: It's intended to be a sweet lyric. I tend to find when I end up in these situations where I, you know, say I'm, you know, asking one of these more existential questions about like, where are you in your career and where are you in your life and what does that mean to you, you know, not so much are you happy, but like, can you take a step back and be happy for your friends who are having a little more success than you at this particular moment, and trying to use the writing process to make some peace with those things. I mean, and and as it relates to the changes, you know, I just let the changes follow the emotion of what the lyric is trying to convey, you know, and with this particular song, I felt like what was essential was to reflect less on what someone might see as a set of accomplishments and more on you know, what I could actually point to as a life well lived, looking at my friendships and looking at my wife and looking at the fact that I have, you know, been able to do this for as long as I have. And, you know, my parents who had been through some things were doing well. And, you know, and I had these nieces and nephews that were accomplishing these great things. And I really immediately found myself turning the lens back onto my family and my personal life, as I was sort of saying, like, oh, and look, at all my friends are, are, are doing well, too. It was a little bit of a head fake to remind myself of what was really important, I guess.
0: Is this whole, I see colors when I hear your voice, I see colors, I don't hear the noise. Two different images kind of came to me in terms of what's going on gesturally. You know, you're outlining this kind of, I'm trying to look at my life with a broad view. And in that space, being the fact that you still have love in your life, (laughs) that is something that kind of fills up any space that could possibly be there. You know, whatever insecurities you have about how the career is going, you know, the fact that you can go home and then hopefully open your heart in that way, that very directly, that's the feel of the chorus. Like we're entering the space of ecstasy and joy and religious fervor as a safe space, as a retreat from all these things that are potentially gnawing.
1: I think even within that too, there's a little bit of a sense of impermanence, you know, in and, and that and the lyric, you know, sometimes you're only flying for a while, you know. Again, it's like I, I don't write these things always to be so specific or even to one hundred percent understand them, <laughs> you know, and, and be able to pull them apart one hundred percent. But I mean, in my mind, when I hear that, especially you know, a number of years later, and and so many sort of iterations of career and life that have changed rather monumentally, it sort of hinted this idea that, you know, whether it's success or whether it's love or whatever it is, it is not a guarantee. I think the reason this song connected, you know, with me as much as it did and with my fans as much as it did is because it does sort of force you to say, like, look at what's good and celebrate it because, you know, those things can be fleeting too. But, you know, if you're lucky, You know, you'll have the stuff that matters the most, which I do think is to be able to love someone and be loved back, you know, as as kind of corny as that is to say, I, I do think that it's rather sustaining if you're able to attain it.
0: And the second aspect of the interpretation that I was thinking about, it's not just that there is a safe space to go when things are threatening, but that, and this is what the I see colors when I hear your voice in particular can also be that there's something that makes a certain kind of sense. It might not even be a sense that anybody else could understand But, you know, however vast and not just threatening, but just incomprehensible, the stuff that you're involved in, there's something that immediately makes sense about this. So it's not just a place to rest your head, but it's a place to reorient. I think that's what you're talking about in terms of, you know, actually looking at the accomplishments of your family and, you know, these concrete things that are more homey than these whatever grand dream, you know, this world of Grammys and stuff. That's strange. Right.
1: (laughs) You've got it nailed pretty well, my friend.
0: Yeah, you're only flying for a while. You have to have some place. You know, I see colors when I hear your voice. Why the synesthesia element at all? Can you say a little more about how that relates to this overall theme admittedly, it was shoehorned into the song. <laughs> you know, I had been carrying
1: around, you know, a definition of the word synesthesia and based on a, a handful of articles I had read and, and in interviews that I heard from people who have synesthesia. And I just found that so fascinating, you know, this this notion of People who can experience sound in an extrasensory way, where, you know, there's a visual component, and sometimes there's actually a taste or these additional senses that go along with, at that point, at least from what I had read in listening to music, that there are these certain tones that generate certain colors. And I had come across somebody who is making art based on, you know, their visual experience with sound. And as somebody who makes, sounds for a living, I found that incredibly compelling. And and in the writing process, as I was kind of made away from the, the verse of the song and into the studio with Mark and started building the production, I was struck by the sense that there may be some magic in tying together this idea of seeing more deeply into the experience of your own life. Maybe there was some parallel into seeing or or, or having some additional sense when hearing sound. At the core of it, it's just about digging deeper into, you know, what could be ordinary matters and trying to find something more in them that sustains you.
0: Yeah, that you've interpreted in a kind of strictly beautiful way. Kind of coincidentally, I had a past guest, this Canadian guy named Asif Ilyas. One of the songs we talked about was also called Synesthesia. Oh, interesting. And he was emphasizing, you know, the weird aspect of it, that it almost is like having ESP or something. There's something psychedelic about even the sound of the word Interesting how this combines with the flying imagery. Of course, flying imagery is all over so many songs, but Grab Your Wings, they're putting Gravity on Trial. I've never heard that exact, Gravity on Trial, like throwing in a trial imagery with synesthesia and a flying, you know, flying is kind of dream imagery. I kitchen sink to this one. (laughs) It's all
1: my favorite things, you know, music, color, flight. You know, I was like, maybe this will be the last song I ever write. We might as well cover some territory.
0: (laughs) But put some space in there. So, this is the first one I've kind of heard that has. So, this bridge, let me play the, the whoa, whoa, whoa part <laughs> here. So I believe this whole style is now referred to as the millennial yawp <laughs> or or, <laughs> uh, or millen- the millennial whoop, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, if you get it to something like Fire Escape, like that's why that song was as popular as it is or you know, one of the things that makes it sound of its era. Two thousand thirteen. I don't remember if there were people doing woa woes whoa, like this at this point where <laughs> What would make one do a woe woe at this point in time? The woe-woes go back many decades. Okay.
1: (laughs) I mean, doo-wop music, I mean, there's a lot of of woes in classic rock and roll, my friend. But yes, I agree. There's definitely a sense, especially when you enter into, you know, pop writing spaces where there's what they call the non-lyrical hook that is discussed pretty regularly, I feel like, in modern pop songs. There's no question about it.
0: One of the guys I'd interviewed, it was his younger co-writer that was like, we need to add a whoa, 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 into the song, like to make it current. It seems like that the labels have been pretty hands-off. How much pressure are you feeling at any given time?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty insulated. It's kind of a pretty hysterical thing if you really think about it. If you look at the arc of my career and my affiliation with major recording companies, you know, it seems like... Every time I step away from one of them, or if you look at those moments in my career where where I've had these big songs pop out, it's usually when I've left a major label and and tried to stretch out and work independently. You know, it's the early beginnings of something corporate. The beginning of Jack's Mannequin when I made everything in Transit before I even had a, a label, and then signed to Maverick, which was just you know an independent with ties to Warner. And then with this stuff, I mean, my the Wilderness Project has all been on an independent and, you know, myself and my manager, we A&R the records ourselves and then deliver them specifically for the reasons that you're talking about. I mean, look, I'll be the first to admit, like, I love popular music. I mean, that's why, you know, that's how I got into making music was because I grew up listening to the radio and, and loving big songs. And I grew up on Michael Jackson and Phil Collins and Billy Joel and Elton John and guys who were talented, but also we're using the medium to reach as many people as possible.
0: Although you do sound like somebody who has older siblings, because like, those were the things I was listening to when I was nine or whatever, and I'm 10 years older than you, and you're still in your generation talking about Elton John. Like, Elton John was not popular at the point when you were 13.
1: I did have like one of my first kissed at Can You Feel Love Tonight while I was on a bar mitzvah dance floor, but uh... I
0: guess you're right. He ne- He's never gone out of popularity. He... <laughs>
1: I'm mean, the youngest of five kids, so my oldest brother, I think, is 11 or 12 years older than me. So so yeah, my house was filled with the Heartbreakers and the Grateful Dead and, and Carol King and, and Paul Simon. and you, you name it. I mean, my parents were children of the '60s, and my dad was at Woodstock, and some of my first records were the Doors and, and Jimi Hendrix. I had a really, really wide breadth of musical influence. You know, my sister was into Madonna and and so that was huge in our house. But I think the common thread of all that stuff was still people who were trying to make really beautifully written songs reach as many people as possible. There's ambition attached to every one of those albums. It wasn't anybody sitting back going, I just hope that I can just play this guitar in the backyard. It was like people trying to make big music and I've benefited greatly from working with the labels I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot of amazing people, but I would never needed, I think, that relationship to be the thing that lights a fire under me to say, hey, you need to write music that's both good and also something that's going to have the ability to be a vehicle for your ideas and for your thoughts to reach people.
0: Well, let's introduce the third song with that all that in mind. So going back in time, Me and the Moon something corporate from your second full album north 2003 well i guess third full album but second one on a label yeah very different influences from almost anything you've spelled out here just the fact that it's a slow you know nine eight time calm jazz thing but like as a piano guy that's hopefully one of the influences that you should be drawing on the the vast piano jazz in there so let's just settle into a minor seventh chord and go so
1: the writing of the song was an odyssey actual recording of it was a pretty special moment as well i wrote the bulk of the song living in a guest room of the singer of a band called newfound glory they were a punk band that had taken something corporate out on a lot of our kind of early tours they were affiliated with the same independent label that had found something corporate back in the day and i was immediately like probably at that point i was maybe 20 years old I was living out of my parents' house for the first time and, you know, just smoking tons of weed and sitting in a room by myself really in the middle of the desert in California about an hour from where I where I lived or had any friends. I wrote the whole song. Originally, it was, I mean, obviously, it's a song about a, a woman killing her husband. I mean, that's the, the subject matter, as heavy as that is to say, and as weird as it was to start writing it. it somehow struck a nerve, and I kept going with it. And originally, the choruses of the song was a trial scene. The verses were her committing the act and cleaning it up, but in no way trying to hide it. And originally, the choruses were... I don't even remember what the lyric was, but it was it was uh, this whole courtroom imagery kind of thing. And I liked the song, and I loved the piano part and the melody. I thought it was great, but I couldn't quite figure out how to execute the chorus and give it enough of a hook to sell how sort of somber the verses were. And I remember being with my band, and we were touring in Europe. We were still touring the first record, but there was already talk about preparing. The second record they wanted it to come quickly because the first record had been a success and you know the whole story about your having a lifetime to write your first album it's kind of the cliche and you have your you only have like x amount of months to write your second record and, and i remember being in england and i dare say not to revel in my drug experiences but i had taken mushrooms in leeds with a, another band that we were on tour with and there was just this big, gigantic full moon out in Leeds. And I don't know if you've ever been to Leeds, England, but at nighttime, I mean, it's a very kind of medieval architecture, very Gothic vibe. I probably would be a better description. And I remember I broke off from the group and decided I was going to chase the moon for the evening because that's what I was doing with myself when I was about 20. And I found myself locked in a bathroom writing the words, it's me and the moon on a piece of paper. And the next day at Soundcheck, I finished the song in the middle of Soundcheck at God knows what club, like maybe the cockpit and the I mean something in that moment I was like, This is what that woman would have been thinking of. You know, this woman who had kind of been pushed over the edge and, and didn't see another way out. And so yeah, that was the hook of the song. That's how it that's how it all got wrapped up.
2: behind she can't find it in a mind gone away away with these nightmares away with suburbia shakedown away you marry a role and you give up your soul till you break down it's me and the moon she said
0: I think unlike both of the previous songs, I mean, it still has a hook where your voice goes up and we change some of the sonic texture to refer to it as a beauty drop, you know, but it's not as dramatically different. You know, the whole song is just more subtle in its jazz mode going between things. You're not like in Blue Vacation where you have the wow, you know, going to uh, yeah. between <laughs> sections or something. Um It's just a more cool song. This song sounds much more like your more recent work than most of the Something Corporate material.
1: If you were a fan of Something Corporate before we were signed initially, you know, I think there was much more of an angling towards classic rock influences than probably how that very first album ended up being produced. Not that I, I I mean, I love the First Something Corporate Record, but I think, you know, you get swept up into a time and you get on the road and you sort of are influenced by your contemporaries and your peers. And I think a lot of the writing of the North album, I found myself doing what I do even to this day, which is like trying to do exactly what I didn't do on the last record. I think there's always a sense in me that, you know, to do justice to my work and to my sort of scatterbrain approach to life in general, I, I have to keep myself interested and excited. And, And I think with North, I was really trying on that album to sort of break, not to say break ties with what people had, I I felt, had misconstrued us to be, which was a punk band. I wanted to plant a flag in the ground, I think, with that record specifically to say, like, no, like, I'm a piano player and a singer-songwriter. You know, I may tour with bands that operate in the scene, but it doesn't mean that the scene defines. And so, yeah, that song specifically was a real breakout and a real intentional tent pole to put up to say, no, like, this is not just you know, gonna be one, four, five changes and mosh pits and jumping up and down kind of thing. And and there was an effort, I think, by myself and the rest of my bandmates to make sure that people understood that we were going for something different than maybe even they had anticipated. And just one thing to add about that particular recording, which I think is something that was you know, is a really cool collaboration that I was glad to share throughout after the whole all of the something corporate records was that Paul Buckmaster who was the the guy who did all of the orchestrations for uh, Madman Across the Water and David Bowie Space Oddity? You know, he actually had, I think, his first cello credit <laughs> on Me and the Moon since his records in the seventies with with Elton and, and and with with Bowie. You know, and and that was another thing that was just I think I think really special about that particular recording.
0: Yeah, so that string end, you know, you've got swirling string parts, which a lot of string parts in pop music. It can just be, you know, basically one finger on a p- piano moving around because you just need the top line. You just need the violin. And so the fact that you then have the whole thing dissolve, you know, with a very audible, low-string part. Yeah, there's no value. It's all cellos. It was a cello trio, which, was,
1: which I thought was really cool as an arrangement. It's all cello. The whole thing it was harmonized, a you know, three-part cello trio that Paul wrote for that, which I think is another really kind of cool thing about it is it's not a very traditional sort of approach to like a rock kind of pop string
0: part. And just the overall feel of the song, I mean, the jazz thing that you set up is kind of immediately counterbalanced by this. You have interesting melodic possibilities when you're, you know, sitting on a minor seventh chord rather than a major. So just even that first, it's a good year for a murder, the note that the er picks, you know, that's the seventh of the C sharp minor seventh there. But right after that, this, she's praying to Jesus, she's pulling the trigger, They're praying to Jesus, like I could almost hear you doing... You're not doing this, but something about that melody just reminded me of the Pearl Jam Stone Temple pilot, like something 1993. Pray into Jesus. I think it's that. I grew up with a lot of that in my life too, so it wouldn't be surprising. I think it's the blues note on the Jesus. Yes. Yeah, 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 that's amazing. And there's something about, you know, and uh, you know, of course Pearl Jam had that song about the little boy who shot up his school. You know, there's something about that. Yeah, Jeremy bro. <laughs> and even using that, praying to Jesus, you know, and with that downturn bluesy thing, like this is going to get into, hey, Joe, where are you going with that gun in your hand? You know, the, the kind of old timey murder ballad stuff.
1: Hey, Joe is big for me too.
0: Yeah, putting that together with the piano swing thing, I thought was a pretty cool mix here. And then to still have the beauty drop chorus <laughs> with Me and the Moon. That was what makes that chorus really happen is
1: that it goes major and you're just dealing with straight up pretty major chords for a second and then you drop back in. It definitely needed the relief. It's a pretty heavy verse, as, as you've noted.
0: And that you've worked your way out of this writing hole by introducing a love element that it's Me and the Moon, she said, to you, the narrator... And I got no trouble with that, but I'm a butterfly. You wouldn't let me. So say a little more about that. You know, you've set up this third character, her and who she shot. And then this narrator now that she's meeting, who's a butterfly. Can you decode that a little or is that just purely emotional?
1: The whole idea in that chorus, this idea of kind of tying in this, it's, it's me and the moon was, I think this woman, even though she had this child and she had this husband, I think at the core of it, she never felt like she really was able to become the person that she was meant to be because she was hemmed in by this life that maybe on the surface seemed ideal to most, that she was sort of quietly suffering. And I think her only release from that suffering became setting herself free by eliminating what she saw as her largest obstacle, that which was her husband. So much of that can be said about so many relationships. A lot of times, people in in an attempt to be something for somebody else don't end up being who they need to be for themselves. And it was a strange headspace to inhabit to write the song. And, you know, I remember playing that song for my mom and her being like, what the hell? (laughs) You know, like, 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 I hope you're not talking about me. I'm like, I don't know who I'm talking about. And I, you know, I, I joke with my wife from time to time. I'm like, Whatever, I, I won't go any deeper into that, but, but just that there's a, something for me in in my personal relationships that I like. I, that song to me becomes like a, a barometer for like, hey, you know, make sure you, you're honest with yourself and make sure you let the people around you be who they need to be.
0: Yes, you marry a role and you give up your soul till you break down. That is a very straightforward statement of the, the thesis here.
1: You can tell that my opinions about marriage were very different at the age of 20 than they are at the age of 36.
0: And I can see this relationship that you, you as narrator are providing are in this new connection, you know, where it's me and the moon actually works as an excuse as opposed to being, that's just crazy. Let's go for a ride. Let's get high. This new phase of emotional exposure, this new relationship. This is what personalizes the song. This is what makes it relatable. It's not just about somebody crazy doing this thing, or, you know, a tragedy, a murder ballad, that it's very much like you were just talking about in the chorus of synesthesia. The space of love then sort of makes sense, even if it's its own weird kind of sense that nobody outside that relationship can understand, makes sense of the most awful outside situations. So that's essentially, we're having a reprise of that, a pre-prize.
1: I think it's about humanizing your characters too. Why I made the song hard to write in the first place was because the verses set up this puzzle. How do you make the listener love the killer? And, you know, I think ending up, and for me personally, in this place where I was in this very vulnerable state and in a foreign country and, and feeling like I was surrounded by all these people that I couldn't relate to on any level, but I was so mesmerized by the moon. And I mean, obviously, there's so much mysticism and mythology and lore attached to the moon and what and how the moon pulls a person in that sense. You know, you, when you get to the chorus, you do feel for her. You do feel that she maybe made a horrible decision, but she did it because she felt like she had no other choice. And I feel very close to that character. And have you know, and have ever since
0: I wrote that song. Interesting to see you try your hand here at what seems like it's pretty unusual for you to do a character song like this. That's totally divorced from your own experience. Is that pretty accurate? <laughs>
1: That is accurate. I mean, I think there's a lot of that or a lot more of that on this particular record, you know, with songs like Penelope and Monday Flowers. And there I say with similar female characters. So you can psychologize me on that one (laughs) as much as you like. But there are there are definitely moments, I think, within Upside Down Flowers where I, I really explored and tried to explore this idea. of You know, it's not that I'm not writing myself into these certain songs, but where I am trying to develop another side to my writing that explores the lives. and the emotions of characters that I'm constructing, even if they are in some ways avatars or extensions of myself.
0: Well, that's a good sign if you have to write about characters that your life is not harrowingly interesting enough to (laughs) merely have so many (laughs) demons that you have to personally exercise. And speaking of, let's just go into our last song that we're just going to introduce and say goodbye here. I wanted to pick something from the Jack's Passenger period, And I just last night, folks can fill themselves in. It's on Amazon Prime, the film Dear Jack, the documentary that you filmed of yourself going through cancer treatment before this album. And so Swim, used as the closing of that documentary, you know, is it just a purely inspirational song? Just wanted to leave folks with something less traumatic than a murder ballad here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, say a little about it before we wrap up here.
1: It's an interesting thing to write an inspiring Song. There's a demand for it and there's a need for it, but sometimes they can feel pandering. And, and I think the reason this one has sort of sustained the life that it has and why it still means as much to me today as it did the day that I wrote it is you know, I was just on the other side of a cancer diagnosis and a successful stem cell transplant. For my sister and had come very close to death on a couple of occasions within a very short period of time in my battle against leukemia. And a lot of people think of it as a song about being sick and getting better. And it, you know, it was interesting. I think what makes the song for me that much more compelling is just that I wrote it probably a year or more after I had found that I was in remission and was really just dealing with like a very, you know, was dealing with all sorts of things, writer's block. I was dealing with a, a real lack of confidence, depression and the feelings of alienation there are a lot of things that young adult cancer survivors encounter survivor's guilt being one of them and, and then just this very strange reacclimation period to life post illness where you just have to kind of put your life back together and figure out what to do next and this song just like really it just found me in a, in a really tough place and that that old like you know with the old adage about you know just throw some dirt on it kid or something like that you know i just i think i just found myself in a moment kind of kind of moping a little bit and just going to just get up and get moving you know you're going to be okay and then you you made it through the hardest part of this thing you can survive this and and there really was like a, a letter to myself to just keep going and boy, did it help me a lot. And I still, to this day, I mean, of all the things that people that I see, tat lyrics of mine that I see fans tattoo on themselves, you know, I'd say this is the song that has sort of been carried in multiple ways by people within my fan base and people who've just found it in a time that they needed it. I got a lot of love for this tune. It's one that I think will always be with me.
0: All right. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Cheaper than therapy. Keep keep it up. (laughs) I'll do that, too. But yeah, I appreciate it. I'll take as much of it as I can get. All right. Here's Swim.
2: that saves you when you're not so sure you'll survive You gotta swim And swim when it hurts The whole world is watching You haven't come this far To fall off the earth The currents will pull you Away from your love Just keep your head above I found Keep your head above swim
0: Thanks to Andrew. I realized I described him at the end of my last episode as being a newer artist, and he does sound actually current, but we are talking about two decades worth of work, three different bands, so not really new. Again, you can learn about his work at andrewmcmahon.com. For my next interview, I'm back to old guys. I was very excited to talk to Danny Serafine, the drummer from Chicago, who wrote some of their key songs in the mid-late 70s, made a lot of band decisions. He wrote a book. He's a very chatty guy. And after him, I have a couple more veteran artists that I've long wanted to talk to. I hope you will subscribe to the podcast at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com or wherever you get podcasts to make sure not to miss them. Now, I've continued being more or less on strike. From recording new interviews, this one you just heard was from back in January, so I still do have up through episode 100 already recorded. There's a couple more that I've committed to in a sort of open-ended way that I do want to get around to doing, but I'm continuing to more or less put my energies elsewhere. The thing that would make me most want to jump right on doing many more of these is if more folks show that they actually want this to continue by signing up for a small contribution at patreon.com slash nakedly examined music. And if you use your user-specific Patreon feed to listen to the podcast, then you avoid all future advertisements, some of which will be appearing on future episodes here. Also, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter. Thanks for listening. Keep on musicing. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Meyer, signing off.